Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within, and I'm very happy to have on my, on my show today, Reverend Dr. Keith Mahenick. Um, he, uh, this is a second part of two parts. His first part aired on July 3rd, 2023. So I really encourage all of you that didn't hear our first conversation to, to peek at it um, after the show. But today, um, and this month, actually, we're highlighting the strength, resiliency, and positive contributions of the queer community. Today's episode will be on an exploration of queer theology, with which I'm going to call him Dr. Um, Dr. M from here on out. He teaches at Emory University. Um, and I, we were talking at the end of the last show, and I was asking him about his course on queer theology that he teaches at Emory University. And he, and I, he said, oh, it's already already filled to the brim and we have people on the waiting list. And I said, oh my goodness, I need to know what this is about. And I really think that our audience also would be interested to know um, a little bit about exactly what that means. So let me just say a, a few more things about him. There's more on the website on Voice America, but Dr. M is a visiting assistant professor of spiritual care and pastoral theology at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. Um, he is a scholar of lived religion and, a pra and practical theology with a focus on trauma, resiliency, and queer spirituality. His current book project engages social scientific research with the LGBTQ plus folks who've experienced homelessness in order to examine the intersections of racialized trauma, resilience, and spiritual practice in queer communities. I am very happy to say that he is a certified teacher of the community resiliency model, which he has taught to the academy, church, clinic, community. And prior to joining Candler, Keith worked as a managing edit editor of Practical Matters Journal a pediatric hospital chaplain, children's home chaplain, a progressive Baptist church minister and high school English teacher. In fact, he was just visiting his family this weekend. He is an ordained minister with the Alliance of Baptists and Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Woo, Keith, that's a mouthful. Welcome back. Thank you. It is good to be back. And what's on your mind today as we get started? Well, what is on my mind today is uh, a prayer. I guess. Uh, one of my mentors from back home, her name is Debbie Cook, and she has this practice where she carries a prayer around in her back pocket. She calls it her back pocket prayer that she just brings to oh. mind every day. And so she texted it to me, and I've been just kind of meditating on it all day myself. So I can, I'll share the one can you today. Share that? So it's called the, the back pocket prayer. I love that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. So share. the back pocket prayer from today goes like this. Holy Spirit, impart to me thoughts that are higher than my thoughts, prayers that are wiser than my prayers, and power beyond my power to spend and be spent in the ways of love and goodness. What so that's what I've been just meditating on all day today so far. What a wonderful way to start the day with back pocket prayers. So I'm hoping that our listeners too might have some ideas of their own 
Um, mm-hmm. Many people might start with a meditation or a prayer, but to actually have it in your back pocket, there's something there's something about it for me, as you said, the physicality of having that close by, that in those moments when we maybe aren't feeling like our best selves, and maybe our um, higher wisdom is not becoming available to us, that we can remind ourselves that it does exist. Oh, yes. Well, so... Let's get started with, you know, what does it, what does it mean? What does queer theology mean? And if you can give us a little bit of an idea, um, I imagine there must be something that, that the students have to read in their, in their student handbook about taking the class. So what do you think, uh, what is it about? Oh, yes. I, I'll just start by um, following. There's a theologian named Patrick Chang. And he lays out what queer theology is pretty succinctly and simply. He says that queer theology is queer talk about God. Um, Literally, theology, theo, God God talk is what it literally means. And so queer theology really looks like three things. It looks like queer people talking about God, talking about their faith and spirituality. Uh, It also looks like queer as in transgressive talk about God, kind of boundary pushing talk about God. And the third way is queer as in queer theory. So bringing a queer theoretical approach to theology, which is all about looking at where we got all this language, all these terms from and historicizing them. So for example, uh, male and female are not natural um, or, or given, or even static. Instead, we might ask, who taught us what a man is? And can we trace that culturally and in our family system um, and in larger kind of political narratives? So those are the three kind of different ways of doing queer theology, I guess. Well, and so I don't know if you can, you know, explain a little bit as well. I know that, you know, having and many, many friends um, from the queer community, there have been times in their life where there have been so many challenges that, um, for example, not being accepted by the faith that they grew up in and questioning, you know, even their you know reason to be alive and wondering if there's something wrong with them. And so I know from talking to you, you, always, you have such a positive outlook of embracing all people and, and helping people understand, I guess, Keith, their relationship to God. So, you know, saying what I've just said, do you have any comments on on that? Yes, I do. Um, So my approach to queer theology is um, as a a pastoral theologian is what we call it, meaning I focus on uh, practices of care and theology of care. So when when I engage queer theology, my starting place is what is care and how do we enhance care? And that's kind of the goal as well. And so when I think about navigating what religion says or how to think about religion and sexuality, um, I think about it in terms of this, this category we'll sometimes use in the discipline called theological doublespeak, meaning that in our minds and our psyches and our souls, many of us have or carry these competing theological messages. So, for example, maybe we grew up in a religious tradition that on the one hand said, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you. You are God's beloved. You are called to love and be loved. 
But on the other hand, you hear messages like, I'm an abomination. Something's wrong with me. Uh, the desires of my body are to be feared or mistrusted. So we have these competing narratives kind of working in our minds all the time. And so I guess my approach to queer theology um, or just doing theology with queer folks is untangling all of that doublespeak to find the theological narratives and stories that are most life-giving, that open up to more love and joy and peace, uh, for example. Well, um, yeah, because I think of, that if you yeah. carry through that doublespeak of, let's say, the abomination, I mean, and we know that, that many folks think about ending their life. And if that mm -hmm. becomes where you live and that's all that you think, and that's what people around you are saying, then where does that love and joy come from? And, yes. you know, maybe you can find it yourself, but sometimes, as we all know, that if we're beaten down, it can be elusive, that it can, it can run away from us. And so we need someone to kind of have that outreached hand to kind of bring us up and yes. say, it's going to be okay. Um, mm -hmm. so, yes, you could comment on that. Oh, yes. Um, you know, the danger with thinking about theological doublespeak, when we look at the religious narratives that can cause harm, uh, for many, uh, for example, in psychological disciplines, social scientific disciplines, the temptation is to say, okay, religion has harmed you in all of these ways, let's help you move on from religion, find community elsewhere, um, or even leave a harmful religious community. And so the, the implicit intervention is secularism, which just kind of repeats this old opposition that puts sexuality and spirituality against each other. So that's why I think theological doublespeak is a rich category because it invites our attention to what else is true in our theologies, what else is true in our religious experience, and how can we tap into the, to the parts of our religious culture, our religious heritage, that are good and life-giving, that we can still affirm and lift up and celebrate. So that's my question, is the how. Mm -hmm. How do we, if we're feeling in those low spaces, and I've, you know, my goodness, um, there have been times in my life I've been in low spaces and, you know, my, my roots, I was raised a Roman Catholic and I have um, my grandmother used to have um, a statue of the Virgin Mary on her bedstand. And she always would have rosary beads that were draped around um, the, the Holy mother, as she would call her. And she would have candles, right. And she'd also have the mm -hmm. prayer cards of everyone in her family who had died. So I was so fortunate, oh my gosh, that when she died, I, they, I was given that. So I now have mm. um, this wonderful statue that I saw growing up as a little girl in my bedroom. I now have the prayer cards of people who've passed. I have the rosary. And the rosary is a very, you know, the how, you know, when you're talking mm. about historical practice, I'm no, I no longer go to church on a, I will admit, I no longer go to church on a regular basis. But guess, guess what I do when I'm low? So I thought that was so mm -hmm. interesting when you talked about the history. The history mm -hmm. of what my roots are, are those rosary beads and my grandmother and the Holy Mother. And to think about, you know, just the, the, the archetype of mother. 
and how mothers embrace us mm. and love us. And when we're down, if we're lucky enough to have one of those wonderful mothers, they will pick us up and rock us and tell us it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. We will get through it. And so, um, so in any event, I guess what I just want to say in low times, I recite the rosary and it's such a repetitive, mm-hmm. um, it's almost not even the words, but the rep- re- the repetitiveness of the sounds that go deep in my heart and fill me with, I guess, a deep sense of my spirituality that was embedded when I was a child. So I have never shared that with you before. So whatever comment you have about me about that, but I think that history is so important for me. Oh, yes. Um, I'm glad you used the word embedded. That is a word we use a lot um, to talk about our embedded theology or our childhood religion. Uh, For so many of us, regardless of the relationship we have with religion as adults, when we go through a crisis, many people fall back on that embedded theology or that childhood religious practice. Um, They remember the practices of their community during crisis. They pray, read Psalm 23, um, things like that. And so I do think that, uh, I guess my take on the whole religious life is will we wait for crisis to remember our practices, to remember a spiritual practice, or will we cultivate that date? Because I do believe that we can touch peace every single day. And we do that through spiritual practice. And um, we know that one of the central functions of spiritual practice uh, as a researcher is that it connects us to goodness, the goodness of the body, the goodness of life, the goodness of God. And so I do think a spiritual practice should connect us to goodness in in some kind of way. Um, And from that, uh, I like to think that we can get better ideas about ourselves and who we're called to become in the world but it's rooted in, in practices. Uh, and that's that, the, the importance of that back pocket prayer. You start mm, your exactly. and have that with you, then how does that change whatever happens you know, to you through that day? Because you are really mm-hmm. embedding your thoughts and, and prayers about life and the world and your spirituality from the very moments of awakening. Exactly. And can I return to something you said a minute ago? Sure, sure. Uh, The mother and Mother Mary. uh, She is very famous in queer theology. Mary gets a lot of attention. Oh, really? Okay, I want to know more about that. (laughs) Please tell me. So one of the the functions of queer theology is to just kind of skew or turn our, our traditional understandings of something and to just see, like, what are we missing? Uh, specifically, what are the power dynamics kind of embedded in, in what we've assumed to be true? So there's perhaps the most famous queer theologian is Marcella Althaus Reed from Argentina. And she writes that every theology implies a conscious or unconscious sexual and political practice. And so what she does is she looks at our theologies of Mary and she's looking at uh, her context in South America and she's looking at how Mary is often lauded as, as the virgin, as this pure image of motherhood, femininity. She's accommodating to God. Uh, but the way that she's talked about 
in Christian tradition is really as sexless. She's not even really a woman at all. We, um, and so if we're not careful, the way that we talk about Mary can set up impossible ideals for women, ideals about purity and virginity and what it means to be a mother. Um, it can set up really harmful ideals. And instead, queer theology might ask, well, are there other ways of being a mother? What about a mother who is really powerful and fierce? What if we look at God as mother, for example? So queer theology just wants to do a lot of play and just see what happens if we just kind of shift our thinking a little bit, um, but also shift our thinking to who is being harmed or hurt or excluded by our theologies. So Mary gets a lot of fun attention. Well, I guess she would. And I mean, I, you know, this is, you know, I grew up in the 60s, so we questioned everything. And I just remember thinking, why would you make the mother of God a virgin? Because it, it was like, you know, when we were kind of exploring our sexuality, you know, when it, the onset of having birth control, for example, it was like, well, you know, did they decide to call her a virgin because of the um, the idea that your sexuality was bad. And so mm -hmm. how could Mary have a sexual relationship with Joseph that ended up with Jesus, right? I mean, all those kinds of questions. And I remember it just, it didn't, it didn't seem plausible to me. And that, it's, mm -hmm. you know, I felt that someone had made that trajectory as part of the story because of kind of not wanting to, to accept the body as being a part of our humanity and that brings us forward, not only with our sexuality, but with having a child. I was a Lamaze teacher and just the beautiful, amazing mm. aspects of giving birth. And going back to my grandmother, my grandmother told me that they didn't talk about her having a baby. She, she was pregnant, of course, but she had this idea that the baby would come out of her belly button like a flower. It would open up. And my, you know, my mm. mom would come from her belly button. But I mean, just the the lack of awareness, right, of of what the human body is and working with it as this amazing, um, you know, I, I guess I've been thinking there's a very famous book out right now by Bessel van der Kolk says the body keeps the score, which is about mm -hmm. trauma. And I've been exploring and thinking about with some of my colleagues, well, the body balances the score and that mm -hmm. doing the kinds of things that you're talking about, touching into our well-being, the practice mm -hmm. of the back pocket prayer, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about a wider concept of what it means to have the spirituality of a mother. And in terms of taking away some of those things that may have something to do with shaming us, but not embracing the wholeness of us, I guess is kind of the way that I look at it. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And so queer theology wants to look at, for I mean, queer theology can do many things. There are forms of queer theology that, uh, want to tear Christianity apart, for example, um, as just fundamentally heterosexist. Um, I kind of have a different approach uh, that sees, you know, if we look at Christianity or if we look at Jesus, the, the idea of the incarnation, that God would become human, is ultimately a celebration of bodies. It is God's identification with bodies, God's presence in love for the body and the way that God calls us to be in our bodies. 
um, in loving ways. So I think Christianity actually has a lot to say about um, how we think about bodies. Um, but of course, that has just been twisted and worked in so many ways. Yes. So. Yeah. I think it has been. And, and certainly, you know, I went to parochial school and it was really sort of thing that you didn't really have something below the neck, um, mm. especially when you were in that adolescent period, when you there's that awakening that happens that we often mm-hmm. start thinking about our sexuality and and what we're attracted to and, and what might be, you know, like wrong thoughts, um, which was Mm -hmm. very embedded in the upbringing that I had. And so then even these, I think what I have come to believe are normal human thoughts, it gets Mm -hmm. pathologized. And, you know, I, I just, you know, one of the things that I have loved about Jesus and learning about Jesus was just how ecumenical he was and how embracing he was. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, one of the most powerful things that he said was he who has no sins cast the first stone. And I was, you know, thinking about Mary Magdalene. And of course she was supposed to be a prostitute, but he didn't reject her. He embraced her. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that I, that I, I think about when I think about some of the divisiveness, because I mean, and please, I'm talking to a theologian, and I'm not a theologian, but I'm just telling you what this mm-hmm. person thinks about these things. I'm going, oh my gosh, to me, if Jesus was alive today, he would be embracing all the people that are being ostracized for you mm-hmm. know, who they love um, or what they think. I mean, to me, that was the peacemaker quality of of who he was and how he he brought um, something, uh, some new thinking into the world. I don't so I don't know what you think. Yes. Yeah. And for that reason, that's why uh, the theologian Patrick Chang, who I opened with, he says that Christianity is fundamentally queer because, you know, you look at Jesus and you see how Jesus challenges and deconstructs all of our binaries. The last shall be first. The least shall be greatest. It is the poor that inherit the kingdom. Um, and then you even see in Jesus's life, you see that deconstruction of human versus divine, life versus death, and how all of these are blurred and brought together under God's love. Yeah, I and I and I and I, and I keep coming back to love, and mm-hmm. the more that I walk through this world, that I just recently had the good fortune to hear um, merrily. Um, um, Evers, who, um, you know, was the wife of Medgar Evers, and she just had her 90th birthday. And my mm-hmm. goodness, that she has lived through a lot of tragedy. And she mm-hmm. has been a leader of the civil rights movement. But what she said, she they had a 90th birthday party at uh, Pomona College, where I live, and it was a big celebration of her life. And she spoke and she's such an elegant, incredible person. But what she said, it was about love, that it's about mm-hmm. love. It's about love, mm-hmm. right? And if and you know, and what did, uh, and and the God of love, um, I think is in my the history of my life, and I think of me historically of the life that I've lived, was that it was it started to be in the '60s where people were not talking about the God, the punishing God, but the loving God, and I'm sure it happened before mm-hmm. that. You know, Keith, you know more about it than I do, but I remember how amazing that was. And that we could have folk songs that talked about love. And it was this embracing of what else was true about being human. Yes. 
Yes. And so Marcella Athos Reed, that Argentinian queer theologian I mentioned, she would talk about doing theology without underwear on. In other words, without hiding our genitals, without being ashamed of those parts of us. Um, and I always think about Audre Lorde um, and her, her great essay, The Uses of the Erotic. And the erotic is an aspect of love. Audre Lorde talks about it as the yes within ourselves and our deepest cravings that brings all of our feelings, uh, that feelingfulness uh, that counters our powerlessness. And so I think so much of the project of queer theology, when we do it in our own lives or in the world as a discipline, it's about finding the erotic in the sacred and finding the sacred in the erotic. So I and want you to course, hold that. I want you to hold that. Thought. Yeah. So finding the erotic and the sacred and the sacred and the erotic. So I didn't know we were yes. going to go this way, but I want to hear more about this. We're going to take a quick break <laughs> and I will be back to, with um, with Dr. M. And we're going to learn more about his thoughts about that and how that is connected to queer theology. So we'll be back in just a couple minutes. You'll hear from our sponsor, the Trauma Resource Institute. Um, and um, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. 
That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. This is Elaine miller Karras with Resiliency Within, and I'm having a very lively conversation with Reverend Dr. Keith Mahenick of Emory University School of Theology, Candler School of Theology, and we're talking about his very popular class called Queer Theology, and we're learning about what that means. So right before the break, we were talking about um, eroticism and sacredness. So over mm-hmm. to you, if you could give us some more insight about what you mean about that. Yes. Um, finding the erotic and the sacred and finding the sacred in the erotic, I think is ultimately about a physical, spiritual, and psychological process of making our bodies and our desires our own, of integrating them. Uh, there's a, a Buddhist a psychoanalyst, Mark Epstein, who says that sexuality is only a threat to spirituality when it's unintegrated. And so the work then is to integrate all aspects of who we are. And unfortunately, sometimes that integration happens around uh, very toxic, harmful affects like shame and fear and guilt. You can build a whole life and theology around shame, guilt, and fear. But I think the invitation of the erotic and the sacred and not pitting them against each other, but integrating them, um, well, that is the invitation, is to integrate these um, in ways that are life-giving. So for me, as a Christian minister, instead of rooting a theology in shame, guilt, or fear— For me, it looks like rooting them in the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And we can root uh, theology of the body, of sexuality, all of this in in those things, in love, joy, and peace, for example. Well, you know, one of the things that's coming up for me is, you know, you hear it so much. It's about morality and immorality. And I mean, what is the definition of morality and immorality? I mean, there, there is certainly, I can just think of, of my mom. I mean, we, she would never have said the word erotic because that was just connected <laughs> to so much shame. And, and so, you know, some people listening to the show was going, what do you mean erotic and sacredness and spirituality? How do those go together? And so I, maybe just comment a little bit, because I imagine this must be a question that comes up. Yeah, I think, I think the first step in this is realizing that our hostility towards the body, um, our mistrust of the body shapes our attitudes towards women, towards sex in general, uh, towards the earth. Uh, It has just been used as a tool of control and domination, actually. Um, To say it differently, uh, shaming the body and mistrusting the body has not yielded good fruit. It's yielded bad fruit. rotten fruit. A lot of people have been really hurt by that. And that is not the God of Jesus, for example. (laughs) Um, And so for me, it is finding the erotic and the sacred and the sacred and the erotic is lifelong work. And it's the work of unlearning, unlearning a lot of the things that we were told were true, but they have actually diminished who we are and who we can become. 
And I think queerness really is about taking inventory of the lies we've accepted, uh, taking inventory of the ways that we have been harmed and diminished and realizing that uh, there is the freedom of possibility of who we might become. We do not know yet who we might become, but we can get curious about that in community. And we can get curious about that in ways that do not cause harm to ourselves and others. I think yeah. that is like the, well, the core the, linchpin. The, right. The core thing that does not do harm to ourselves or others. To me, that's about the morality, right? Of, of being mm-hmm. human being and, in, and, and also the golden rule. There was a time when I, I d- took the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. And I put in how many religions have something similar? Oh my gosh! I mean, I googled googled, googled it, mm-hmm. and there were just so they had all the different religions that had something that was very similar. So then I'm coming to mm-hmm. this idea of gosh, you know, my own spirituality, and I've traveled so much around the world, um, Keith. You know that, and I've been to Nepal, and I've worked with people who are Hindu. I've been in, um, I've worked with many people who are Christians. I've been in China with who people who have very um, sincere beliefs of the teachings of Buddha. And so when you're a person that has come across the globe like that, I'm not someone that goes into a, the suffering. And oftentimes I've been there mm-hmm. when there's been great suffering um, and say, oh, you need to think like I think. I want to know how does what you, your history of your belief, how can that help you right now? in the suffering that has come to you? And is there a way that I can remind you of that? You know, I always think about a sweet lady in the Philippines saying, thank you for reminding me what I already knew, but had forgotten. And, you know, I often repeat her words because I thought, oh my goodness, that is the most amazing compliment of the work that we've done around the world. And Mm. um, Mm. so I often thought about, I was actually at dinner with some friends last night. We were talking about this. They're both Jewish. And we were talking about how my, our beliefs and my beliefs have been now that there is an amazing kind of spiritual mountain. And there's all these incredible paths to that same source of spirituality that, you know, Mm -hmm. that universal presence, you know, the mother, father, wise, you know, I don't know, entity of, of, of the planet that calls us to to awaken the better parts of ourselves and that Mm -hmm. all of the kind of the religions of the world have come to these basic tenets in these different ways but with some of the basic basic beliefs of caring for oneself and caring for the your your family and your community no obviously you're very schooled in all of these things so i'm just wondering if you have any comments about about that yeah, I, you know, when you were talking about the way you were interacting with someone, asking how uh, her tradition, her faith is helping her, that's thinking like a good chaplain, honestly. <laughs> One of the first things we learn in, uh, in healthcare chaplaincy, for example, but also just help, just chaplaincy in general, is that if you go in with the impetus to convert or to put your beliefs on someone, you're really taking advantage of someone in a time of vulnerability and transition and crisis. And so it's actually unethical to go in with this kind of conversionist lens. And instead, uh, we just ask questions. Um, This belief you have, uh, is it it life-giving or life-limiting? You know, asking questions about 
the fruits of these beliefs and these practices in someone's life? Is it strengthening them? Is it connecting them to goodness? Is it building compassion? Then it's a then it's good. And I may not share it and we may disagree. Um, but if it's doing those things in your life, connecting you to goodness and compassion, then that is something that I can affirm. And so to me, care becomes, yeah, core for how we just navigate, but also hold religious differences with respect. Well, and I think, you know, knowing about your work as a chaplain, when you're called to someone's room, um, there may be some information about what their spiritual beliefs are, but there may not, having been in that situation as a hospital social worker many times. Mm-hmm. But um, I have found for many people that their spiritual beliefs um, can really um, connect them to that sacred. And even when yes. they are faced with such suffering and tragedy, that there is that, that aspect that they, that they can hold on to that can guide them in what's mm-hmm. ever happening in front of them. In fact, I think that I've seen is, is individuals that don't have spiritual beliefs have a much more difficult time um, in mm-hmm. understanding what's in front of them. I, you know, I don't know if you can comment on that. Yeah, I think that just comes from a fundamental human need for meaning, purpose, and belonging. We just have a fundamental need to make meaning of our lives, meaning of who we are. And uh, a religious belonging, when we belong to a religious community and tradition, uh, then we have lots of resources to help us make meaning. So I think, yeah, I think that is just kind of like the so, core need. So these, this conversation we're having, I mean, it seems yes. like would that be part of what would happen in your class? I mean, you put out the ideas and then there are the questions and the dialogue that happens mm-hmm. between the students and yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And I'm lucky to have students at Candler who all have um, internships and ministry placements so some are coming right after uh, a shift at a shelter or at the hospital or after preaching a sermon. And so we're all bringing different stories and experiences and getting curious about what these experiences might teach us about ourselves and might teach us about God. And my goal is that we, we kind of know what is of God by knowing what is most loving. Like Jesus says, God is love. And there are lots of queer theologians who talk about the doctrine of revelation can be understood as God's coming out as love, as radical love, which uh, deconstructs all our binaries and helps us just reimagine the whole world of relations, including the way we relate to ourselves. Well, so the other question that I have for you right now with what's happening in the world, I shared with you that a, a dear friend had um, uh, sent me a text and just about how he he was feeling after the recent Supreme Court decision um, about um, the, the person's freedom of speech that they could say, I'm not going to serve someone who is marrying a person of the same gender. And it was... Uh, it just it was a heartfelt, really mournful, I think, text, as I'm thinking about it, of someone that was suffering from all the, um, I think, uh, ways that 
that that society has changed over the last, let's say, 20, 30 years, feeling like mm-hmm. it was a step backward um, in terms of his rights as a gay man. And I'm mm-hmm. just wondering if someone comes to you, and I'm not here to to say to someone who may be listening, you may think very differently than what I think or what um, Dr. M thinks, but suffering, suffering. And mm-hmm. if someone comes to you and they're suffering in that way, that is, you know, that represents the queer community and you as their minister, how, you know, what would you say to them? And maybe people that are listening have a, a child, a son, a daughter, an aunt and uncle, friends that are suffering. What do you, in, in your perspective as a minister, a theologian, what do you say to them? Well, I'm, I'm reminded of Judith Herman's quote where she says that suffering makes theologians of us all. <laughs> yes. Which I just think is a great one. Um, I think to answer your question, you know, I, th- I think it is a belief that we are separate from each other. That is the root of so much harm in this world. The, the Supreme Court case you just mentioned, at core of that is a belief that I am separate from whoever comes to me. And that is not true at even a biological level when we think about nervous system resonance and mirror neurons. And it's definitely not true at a spiritual level. We are all intimately interconnected and our lives are not separate, but woven together in really messy ways. So that would, that's kind of my, my critique of that case is that it's, it's just rooted in a kind of individualism that is not true. And I think if, if someone, I guess my first, my first thought is, is if someone is coming to your mind in general, uh, reach out to them, check on them. If you're in a place to check on people and someone comes to your mind, they probably are coming to your mind for, your, for a reason and just reach out and check in because none of us are meant to carry any of our burdens alone. None of us. And we are all meant to do this together in community, um, in community that loves and supports us and brings out the best in us, um, that doesn't diminish us or ask less, uh, but invites us further in. And that can be really hard to find. Um, My own belief is that if we are still and quiet and pay attention to our lives, that God probably has already sent some relationship or some person in our lives that we can reach out to. Um, And if not, we can ask for that. (laughs) We can ask for uh, the universe or for God to send us community, to send us places to belong. We can start cultivating that in our own bodies with spiritual practice. Uh, practices that connect me to my goodness, not my shame, not my fear or guilt, but practices. And I'm, and I'm thinking broadly about practices, like a quiet walk around the neighborhood where you leave your phone at the house <laughs> or a walk through the woods um, or just some mindful gardening or something that returns you back to yourself and relaxes the mind and builds compassion for just who you are first and foremost. I believe that the spiritual life, um, the fruits of the spiritual life are love, joy, peace. Like 
our practices should be connecting us to these things. And if, and if it's not, if, if we're doing something, if we have a faith or religious practice or a belief in God that's causing us harm, then I, I think we can let it go. Um, and we let it go in, in queer theology. We let it go not by saying no, but by saying yes, by expanding the narratives and stories available, not by saying this is the one right way to believe in God, or here's the one right interpretation of this passage. I think queer theology would want us to proliferate just a multiplicity of options, of options to connect to ourselves and to each other and to the earth. So I guess my sense is that there's always more freedom always. There's always more love and there's always more peace than we've yet to imagine. And we can start touching that within our own selves and our own bodies uh, through spiritual practices and community. Well, Keith, as I'm hearing you speak, I'm just thinking of three words, love, joy, peace. I mean, when I hear you talking yeah. about, about queer theology and the practices and, and the dialogue and the also the expansive perspective of mm-hmm. that we may have been framed in a certain way, but who did the framing? And does yes. the framing is the framing grounded in the truth? I guess, you know. Right. And then we say, well, who makes that truth? Uh, this yes. is also connecting me to um, I my um, my great my great grandmother was part Mayan. Mm-hmm. I'm like you know I have my DNA. I have 18 percent indigenous in my DNA, and I've always been very drawn to learning about some of the indigenous tribes of the Americas and especially mm. the Navajo. Um, Diné is what they call themselves. Um, and I had the good fortune of doing some work there with a diabetes and pregnancy program um, as a young social worker, um, helping people understand because they had a terrible um, problem with diabetes during pregnancy. So I learned a lot about their culture. But one of the things that was beautiful to me was learning about their creation story. And it mm-hmm. comes from a part of their world. It's called, the, it's, um, well, I guess the, the, uh, English term is the Canyon de Shea. They have another term for it that I can't pronounce. But in any way, they believe that the that that's where life started. And, mm. you know, of course, they didn't know about any of the other world religions. They were there in the Americas, and they didn't have the exposure to all these other religions of the world. And yet, the Diné have a beautiful spiritual practices. Um, you know, there's they're called songs that are for the healing of, su- of suffering, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but what has been explained to me by some of the wise souls, the elders um, of the Diné are all the beautiful practices that existed. And so when I mm-hmm. think about these practices, the practices are not only the world's, I guess we call the great religions, but yes. the spiritual practice of indigenous peoples that have all had their own creation stories that mm-hmm. are very different from how we have been raised in the West. So is part of what you do as a theologian is also look at, and you know, those kinds of creation stories and spiritual practices of, of indigenous people. Oh yes, 
Absolutely. In fact, I was having a conversation with a friend and colleague who's a professor at Columbia Theological Seminary, Christine Hong. She teaches a lot of interreligious engagement and um, also teaches about Korean indigenous practice and spirituality. And uh, so I was talking with her a lot about these Korean indigenous practices of ancestor veneration, about how the ancestors will come to you and show up for you in various ways. Um, and I mean, ancestor veneration is, is a common spiritual practice found around the world, actually. And it's one of those that I've been incorporating into my own practice, actually. And there is Christian precedent for this, for the the tentative nervous Christians out there. Um, one of Jesus's spiritual practices that he always modeled for his disciples was that he retreated into nature, sometimes alone, and sometimes just bringing one or two close beloved friends with him. Uh, but we have this great story of Jesus uh, known as the transfiguration, where Jesus is alone on the mountaintop talking with his ancestors. Elijah and Moses, who show up for him and give him wisdom and strength. And so I've just been thinking about that image a lot, um, about ancestor veneration, which, you know, th there's something queer about that and, and expanding the practices that we commonly think of as Christian or not Christian and realizing that, you know, there's these, these, these boundaries and lines of what counts as Christian or not or religious or not are just human made. They're all made by, like we can trace uh, uh, the historical emergence of them. Um, so yes, I definitely think that, that so much of queer theology or a lot of queer theology um, does attend to, to knowledges, spiritualities, practices that have been maligned or dismissed or demonized. And it kind of reclaims that wisdom and brings it back out and asks what we can learn about it from today. Well, you know, you're, I, I, I know I shared um, this with you privately, but I'm thinking about, you know, this idea, this ecumenical vista of different religious practices and different faiths. Um, I had an incredible honor of having lunch with the Dalai Lama when I was in New Delhi um, in 2019. And I was sitting with about 20 people and we're having, you know, conversations. And of course, you know, you just feel when you're with him that you're there with a presence. And one of the individuals in the room said, um, your holiness, he said, I understand from some of my reading that Jesus spent time with the Dalai Lama of his day. And so his holiness looked at the gentleman at our table and he said, oh, yes, he was with us for seven years. It's in our history. And so there was, and so there was a conversation that kind of just stopped at that point. And I think, gosh, I'm there with the, one of the most revered, you know, um, spiritual leaders of the world answering that question. And so I go, well, I mean, the, they have incredible history, right? In terms of the documentation mm. of, of their, um, of the Tibetan monks and what happened with them. So I just wanted to share that with you. And I imagine you must have heard that story before. I have heard that story and I have heard it from my Hindu and Buddhist friends and siblings, not from my Christian ones. So it might be a chance for Christians to just kind of listen. Uh, one of my good 
good friends here in Atlanta is Hindu. And she told me this, that in her, in her kind of understanding and, and tradition, they have talked about how Jesus, during the missing years of Jesus. The missing years, exactly. A, That's what he, he was referring to. <laughs> Yeah, the missing years that our scriptures don't account for. Uh, there are stories and tales that Jesus went and learned from other great spiritual teachers in the East. Uh, and there's a, I guess, I mean, I think pretty decent evidence that Jesus learned, for example, tactics of nonviolent resistance. Uh, how do you resist empire? He learned these things from these spiritual teachers as well, and then brought them back to his own community uh, that was being oppressed by the Roman Empire. Well, and Keith, I have to say that our time is quickly leaving us. It's again it's like the fastest hour ever. But I guess I'm I was thinking about as you were talking the living Christ, because mm. in my estimation, um, the living Christ is in each one of us, and this perspective that we're talking about is a widened perspective. And bringing mm-hmm. in, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and what you're bringing in other other faces as well in terms of what his, you know, his learning was, and that wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show, and we have about a minute left. Is there anything you want to say in a minute or less? Yes, <laughs> I got audience. one quick thing. Um, one quick thing, and I got this from Alok Vedmanan, whose work I think everyone should look up. Uh, But they say the issue is when it comes to uh, LGBTQ experience, the issue is not comprehension, but compassion. So we need to spend more time just cultivating compassion for those that have a different experience than us um, and realize that so many of our debates where we think it's about understanding or comprehension, it's really a lack of compassion. And we can cultivate that through our own spiritual practices. And Keith, thank you so much, because my guest for um, uh, on the 10th, uh, it talks all about this. Exactly. That's the name of the show. So the, oh, perfect. Yeah. So, th- so they can listen to Kate Thomas um, and, and they will talk more about that. So thank you so much. And my audience, remember what else is true in your life. Remember the goodness and the goodness that lives inside of you. Joy and peace and love. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. 